Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, welcome back to another Common Ground Unity podcast. We're so grateful that you listen in to these conversations that we have with uh, various people uh, who are across the spectrum of Stone Campbell Movement churches, churches of Christ, independent Christian churches, international churches of Christ. Our, Our goal here on Common Ground Unity, as far as the podcast is concerned, is to introduce you to people and to resources and to ministries uh, that might help you in your ministry and that that just might tap into the power of a, of a more unified movement where we're working together to accomplish the purposes of God rather than staying apart. So hopefully you've met a whole lot of interesting brothers and sisters over the course of these 87 podcasts so far. Um, we've got another great guest who has returned for another conversation today. And before I reintroduce him, uh, let me let me mention that if you would like to partner with us financially in Common Ground Unity and help us to build this ministry, if you've been blessed by it, then you can partner with us by going to our website or in the show notes, you'll see a place where you can give either one time or regularly uh, to help us do more through Common Ground Unity. I'll say that uh, Tina and I, who normally co-host this, Tina can't be with us again this week. She'll be back with us the next, Lord willing. Uh, we, we volunteer uh, to do this. We're not paid hosts of this. We've got a heart for this ministry. But there are things that we would like to, to do in increasing ways through Common Ground Unity and build uh, the ministry itself. And we're working with a whole lot of folks. It is certainly not just the two of us. There are a lot of people working together in Common Ground Unity. So we invite you to partner with us in those ways. Uh, also, we encourage you to get involved in a gathering with some other believers in your area. Bring some folks together from various uh, congregations outside of your own church family and start talking about ways uh, of how you can participate in the work of God in your city, community, or county together. Wouldn't that be a blessing to all uh, help be a part of the answer to that prayer that Jesus prayed for unity? Todd Vaught is one of those people uh, who is trying to bring people together to do kingdom work. Uh, Todd was with us last week. He's the executive director of Mission Alive, a missional church planting ministry that focuses on starting new innovative churches in marginalized communities. He's also written a couple of books uh, that you can uh, find, I take it, on Amazon. Todd, you can correct me on that. But he's the co-author of Discipleship Cohorts, Listening to God Through Scripture, Prayer, and Mission. He talked a lot about discerning in our last podcast, and I'm sure there's some good discussion there about discerning our place in the work of God. And then Catalyze Coaching, uh, Canonic 
Conversations for Growth and Change. Um, Todd's got his master's in communication and then in missions, two master's degrees from Abilene Christian University. He lives in McKinney, Texas with Candace, his wife, and uh, he's an elder at the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ there in Allen, Texas. So, Todd, welcome back. Glad to have you again. Hey, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our last conversation. I know our listeners did. I'm going to start off with, I don't know if you're a Bob Dylan fan. That may age us a little bit. Last podcast, we were talking about pagers, and we were having a hard time finding the word, but we came up with it because we're old enough to remember pagers. Uh, maybe maybe you remember this song back from the 60s. We were both, I'm sure, little boys at that time. Uh, but the, the song is, The Times They Are A-Changing, and the last, or one of the paragraphs says, If your time to you is worth saving, and you better start swimming, or you'll sink like a stone for the times, they are a-changing. Uh, we live in changing times, and I guess every generation could say that, but it seems like the change has been exponential in our lifetime. Uh, David had with him the, the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, First Chronicles twelve thirty two. So as I mentioned, we seem to be living in a time of major shifts, maybe even tectonic shifts, both culturally and within our churches. Could you help? us with perspective as to, to what it is that's happening and how followers of Jesus might rise to the times. Yeah. So, um, you know, it seems to me that, um, the, the, the developing secular worldview has kind of caught us as Christians a little bit off guard. Um, I don't know that we have been as on top of the shifting cultural understandings of the people that we live among. Um, a guy named um, Charles Taylor recently wrote a book called uh, A Secular Age. Now, it's quite a beastly um, book to read. Uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart by any stretch. Uh, but in that book, he dissects pretty well uh, the secular, the, the developing secularization of, of Western culture, particularly here in North America. Um, he talks about our loss of enchantment, meaning our loss of kind of believing in, in anything that transcends the human experience. And so, um, and the thing is, that's not just something our unbelieving neighbors are grappling with. It's something we grapple with too, because we are drinking and breathing the same culture. And so um, we as Christians are, are struggling with this sense that human beings, everything is sort of defined by the hum, individual human being experience, rather than recognizing that there are forces that transcend the human experience, what we might think of as supernatural. I don't mean boogie-woogie kind of supernatural. I mean, super as in above the natural experience, right? Uh, the, the original meaning of the term supernatural, think something that is above our natural experience. And we as, as Western Christians have been struggling with this for several generations, and now it seems to really have come to the forefront um, and it's a little difficult to know how to handle that when our neighbors, we're no longer able to talk to our neighbors on the level of what does the Bible say, because they just have don't no interest in no belief in 
the Bible as having anything valuable to say above their their personal experience in life. So I, I think that's one of the major dynamics that's at play that that most of us miss pretty well. We we miss it not entirely, but quite a bit. Another factor that I think we're dealing with is at least in the chair that I sit in, I would say a near wholesale failure of conservative Christianity over the last 50 years. Um, now that may, that may be, or may sound a little extreme or maybe hyperbolic, but I think we are experiencing um, the, the result of having hitched our wagon with a particular movement within United States history. And now we're paying the price for it. And I'm, I'm going back to the, to the mid to late seventies, the moral majority, Jerry Faldwell, and the, the merging of conservative Christianity with the Republican party. And um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not taking a political position here. I just think it's, been very dangerous for Christianity to Christianity, particularly what we would consider a more conservative brand of Christianity to be so closely associated with any political party, you know, blue or, or red. Um, and so for 40 years there, I think there's been kind of an unholy alliance that in the last five years, six years has really uh, threatened conservative Christianity because so many of our fellow American citizens cannot figure out why people that say they follow Jesus are, have also so closely associated themselves with a particular political party. Um, a party uh, also at play here is in this association with a party. Uh, we say that we have tangible concerns for all members of the community, but our community doesn't see it. And I think that's been, that's been a real problem. We're dealing with a credibility issue uh, in North American uh, culture. So from my perspective, we need to not, I'm not saying become apolitical and I'm not saying even change political parties. What I'm saying is we need to dial up our commitment to the Christian faith and not see it as the same thing as a commitment to whatever your political persuasion is. To, to really emphasize our Christian faith far above our political commitments and then begin living out our Christian faith in a more tangible way that does impact the local community. I think if that begins to happen, we'll, we'll start getting a hearing like we've not had in a very long time. So many churches totter in decline. Others are facing stagnation or just a lack of growth. Um, still others are worried about diversity and progressivism leading to new expressions of what church looks like. You add to that many churches are being co-opted by political ideologies and culture wars. What are your thoughts about these dilemmas that, that we're facing? And how do we um, focus on the kingdom more and the core of the gospel? Where does that all fit into this discussion? Uh, it should fit in first. Right, uh, our commitment to the kingdom, our commitment to a Christ-like ethic, uh, should be first and foremost the the way that we interact with our in our local communities. Um, 
And as I just sort of said in the last statement, um, our close association with any political party becomes problematic when that political party does not reflect Jesus. And then our fellow fellow citizens look at us and wonder, well, are you following Jesus or are you following a political party? And um, so it seems to me that the first thing we've got to do is dial up our commitment to the Christian ethic first and foremost. And if that means that we have to dial down or even change our political commitments, then that's what it means. Um, so that in the recent two or three years has really been a, a major issue. Um, I think also um, we have had a fairly narrow view of what a faithful church looks like. And, and we have our view of, of faithfulness has been determined by stylistic issues. And we've not done a good job of distinguishing the difference between what are cultural choices that we're making and what is a uh, God-glorifying local community of believers. And by that, I mean, um, you know, we have had certain worship styles that have been demonized. And there's nothing in Scripture that would suggest that those worship styles ought to be demonized. But because they were different than the cultural church that was handed to us, we've found ourselves demonizing those things. And again, for people that are outside the church, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, it, it, In fact, it looks hypocritical for Christians to be attacking other Christians over something as mundane as music styles, uh, which find nothing, there's no nothing in scripture about music styles. So um, I think those are a couple of things that we, we've really got to get a handle on. We've got to start looking at the church through the eyes of our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, and, and realizing what are they seeing and hearing from us that is not a reflection of Jesus and, and begin making those changes. And you, you've coached a lot of churches and you, uh, you come alongside churches that want to be a better reflection of Jesus and his mission. H how do you, or, or what kind of advice would you give to churches that are, you know, kind of stuck in one place and they're in this place of stagnation? Maybe they're not uh, in any way a reflection of the community around them. How do you help them move from that position to a place where they're more of a kingdom outpost than just uh, people uh, that have the wagon circled protecting what they have. Can you share anything there that'd be helpful? You know, um, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verse 21, this is uh, post-resurrection, um, pre-ascension. Jesus is going about, you know, he sees over 500 people um, at one time and he's, and he's meeting with his disciples and he says, he says to them, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And somehow that concept of being a people sent by God into the world with the same mission that Jesus had, somehow we missed all of that in our institutionalization. Um, and so what I would say is with that and a couple of other passages in mind, our churches need to front load mission. Uh, we, we, need to, we, need to win, we need to win and commit to mission first 
before we add the other things in. So here, here's what I mean. Early in Mission Alive's history, um, we asked, we were having gatherings of church planters, and we asked them one time, if your members of your church could only do one thing in a given week, what would you want them to do? And virtually every one of them said, come to the worship gathering on Sunday. Well, now, why would they say that? I mean, these are church plants. We're trying to lead other people to Jesus. We're trying to connect with people in the community. Why would they say that? Well, one, it's what's been said for hundreds and hundreds of years. But two, we value what we measure. And we all measure the ABCs, right? Attendance, buildings, and cash. And um, so what I would say is we got to stop doing that. We got to stop valuing and measuring our metrics have to change from valuing just what that Sunday morning gathering. And that kind of is a win or lose proposition to front loading mission in the church and letting that drive the very nature of the church. And by mission, I don't mean sending missionaries overseas. I mean, engaging your own community with the ethics of Jesus, caring for people, helping people restore the community and whatever's broken in the community, commit yourself to fix it. You don't have to do it all at once, but start somewhere. So So I would say first thing is that, yeah. So if you're sitting there with a church leadership and you're, you know, let's say you've got a dashboard in front of you and the things you measure, um, and we're used to measuring the things you just described, you know, giving in the plate, attendance, number of baptisms or, you know, there, there are those things that are you know used to be up on the board in front of the church building that were changed week to week. What are some things you would encourage a church leadership to start measuring? What are the things that you would say, these are the things perhaps you need to start looking at as counting more significantly? Not to, not to say that assembly is not a part of being a believer, coming together and, and being edified and, and, and all that. But what are some things you would say, here's some things you can point to to say that you're on mission. So there's no way to take an established congregation with the culture that we have in our established congregation and make a massive change all at once. So it's a matter of making small incremental changes. So the first thing I would say is begin uh, with a small number of people within your local church and in freeing them up to commit themselves to mission in the community, to engaging the brokenness of your local community and start counting them doing that, the number of people doing that, the number of people they're talking to, the number of people they're having deeper conversations. And then as anything that's broken begins to be repaired, start counting that. And the more you do that, the more people are going to want to shift from sitting in the pew on Sunday morning to going and engaging in the brokenness of the world. Because there is something so powerful about getting to stand and watch God fix stuff that's broken. I mean, it's just, it's intoxicating to see God use a life to help bring restoration to another life. And the more we see it, the more we want to be a part of it. So that's what I would say. Start there with just a a small number of people and free them up to engage and resource them. Don't over-resource them. There's a problem with over-resourcing too. But resource them enough to engage some area of brokenness within the community. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together wrote, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Do you have any thoughts about Bonhoeffer's statement and how it relates to healthy communities of Jesus, whether it's a mega church, a small church, medium church, house church, missional church, liturgical, contemplative, or otherwise? What, what are your thoughts? Well, first off, he scares me to death because I am in the church planting business, right? Um, and so just something like, oh, Bonhoeffer, what do you, you know, what would you think of what we're doing? Um, so, so the first thought that comes to mind is that, um, that, that he's right in that the first goal of any institution, whether it be that a church or a university or a government or whatever, the very first goal that trumps all others is to continue to exist. And all values and everything will be changed if needed in order to justify the ongoing existence of that institution. And so what he's seemingly saying there, if I'm understanding him right, is, you know, we can get so we can get our agenda so far out there that it ceases to be, you know, something of God. Um, and so, I mean, this is where denominations come from, right? is we get a particular view of the way things ought to be. Um, and yet there's no way to be generic, right? We have to make choices. And so uh, this is why we lean so heavily into spiritual discernment as the way we go about making those choices. We have to pay, we have to ask God first and pay attention. And unfortunately, a lot of churches aren't doing that or they haven't done that. Um, now, when it comes to all of the different styles or models of church that you listed, um, honestly, I think any one of them, any one of them can be a fantastic blessing and a successful uh, expression of the body of Christ. Every one of them. Um, but they can also, all also be um, problematic if they are the expression of of an individual's preferences over what the kingdom needs in a location. Um, there's a guy, some of you may know the name Ed Stetzer. He, uh, he was the um, uh, missional research director of missional research at Lifeway for a long time. I've kind of lost track of him, but years ago I was at a conference with him and I think Ed himself has planted three churches and then he's coached and trained literally dozens, if not hundreds of others to do it. And he was, he was leading a seminar and he had a room full, maybe 300 would be uh, church planners, meaning they hadn't, they weren't yet church planners, but they kind of had a vision or a dream. And he said something that I found shocking. He said, don't you dare go plant the church that's in your heart. Go plant the church the community needs. And he knew he was talking largely to young 20-somethings, by and large, maybe early 30s. And he was challenging them, I think, in the same direction that Bonhoeffer is, is, is really make sure that this is not about you and what you want, but this is about what God wants and what the community needs. Uh, what can they hear and what can they not hear? Because not all these forms of church are going to resonate with, with every community. So, um, I think that's really where the, the practice of spiritual discernment becomes important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes leaders are, are valued for their talent or charisma more than their character. Uh, 
or spiritual development. Can, can you speak for just a little bit to the importance of a leader's personal spiritual formation or a contemplative life being developed prior to planting or leading churches? And, uh, and how does community or mentorship fit into that process of being spiritually formed in, in Christ? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, a couple of things that are kind of pushing against each other. The one is on the one hand, younger leaders, uh, probably need to be challenged with regard to their ego and their lack of experience. And they need to be more attentive to people that have gone before them. On the other hand, younger leaders are the ones that are more likely to go jump into some of the most difficult places, right? Those of us that are older and more seasoned, we maybe see the challenges more clearly or something. So um, so those things tend to work against each other. But um, your, your question about the intersection of contemplation and mission or action or, or engagement um, I think that is tremendously important, and we certainly we certainly lean heavily into that. In fact, we are pretty indebted to the work of Parker Palmer. Some of you may know that name. He actually is fairly famous in the higher education industry, but he is uh, he's also very well known in the uh, contemplative spirituality world. And he wrote a book called The Active Life. Uh, several years ago. And in it, he talks about these two groups within Christian history, the contemplatives and the activists, and how, you know, the contemplatives, the way they engage God or the way they interact with God is sort of in prayer and in silence and in quiet and, you know, whatnot. And the activists are more your missionaries and your people on the street and the people engaged in frontline ministry stuff. And, And he said, you know, there's been a fair amount of back and forth between these groups throughout Christian history. And the case that he makes is it's not either or, it's both and. You can't have one without the other and remain faithful. The contemplatives, uh, if they if all they do all day long is pray and worship and listen and journal, but they never get out on the street and do anything, then you know he calls that escapism. He, he says that's sort of the old, the old expression I remember from years ago is you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Um, and I, I, I've met a lot of people like that over the years, that that's how they engage God, but it doesn't do people, it doesn't do anybody else a whole lot of good. But you flip it around and you take the people that are the activists and they're out on the street and they're feeding people and clothing people and preaching the gospel and going across, you know, overseas and doing all of that stuff, but they never stop to pray and to listen and the truth is, and, and Palmer calls these folks, they, he says that they live in frenzy. It's just this frenzied kind of life, but it doesn't have the, the deeper, quiet quality of, of contemplation. And he says, basically, they don't know if what they're doing is what God wants them to do or not, because they've not ever stopped long enough to listen. So in Mission Alive, we weave those two together pretty, uh, pretty intentionally. Um, in fact, before our very first step of, of any a potential church planner working with Mission Alive is a, is a uh, season of what we call discernment, where we, we ask them to put themselves through a structured season of discernment in which they pull together their trusted spiritual guides around them and they pray and listen 
is this a calling from God? Because if it's not a calling, when it gets tough, you'll bail every time. If it is a calling from God, you're much more likely to stick it out through the difficulties, which they are inevitable, and because you believe God has called you to this. So um, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? I'm sure if that answered your question. Uh, that does well. That does well. Good insights. Um, well, it has been a blessing to have these conversations with you. And I uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time. Last podcast to talk to us more about Mission Alive. And let me remind our listeners that you can get information about Mission Alive at www.missionalive.org. Learn more about what uh, the ministry that, that Todd leads is about and how it may be able to come alongside your church and help launch something new in uh, communities around you uh, or help you to get a new vision for the mission of God in your area. Um, and then, Todd, it's just been good to talk about the times we're in and how to be faithful uh, kingdom people in churches in times like this. So, boy, th- thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners uh, before we get away? Hate to break the conversation off here, oh, man, but... No, you know, I, I just appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, I shared in the beginning of the other podcast, you know, my history with the ICOC, and I've got lots of friends in the Independent Christian Church and in Disciples of Christ. So uh, I have had the blessing of walking uh, either personally or with people in all expressions of this movement. And I just appreciate you guys for kind of trying to hold hands with everybody. I know it's not easy, but uh Praise the Lord for for what you guys are doing. And I do pray that well, God we, will bless it. Started out as a unity movement. And uh, we, we just feel strongly that we can do far more together than apart. And, uh, and we just know how dear this is to the heart of Jesus, the unity that he prayed for in John 17. So we can make our contribution to that. We appreciate you partnering with us in that and uh, sharing with our listeners some of the things that you're doing with Mission Alive, and coming alongside churches. I've got one last question for you that is very important and that that, uh, we ask our uh, guests to answer. If I were to come out to uh, Allen, Texas, and get together with you and have a cup of coffee, and we were to be able to sit across the table, which, by the way, I would enjoy doing, no no doubt. Um, How do you take your coffee? Ah, uh, great question. I spent my early years in West Africa, which was colonized by the French. So I tend to drink my coffee with uh, creamer and you, today sweetener, but it used to be sugar. Uh, but today right. sweetener, yeah. I, I tend to drink it in the French way. Well, very good. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you, Todd. Well, likewise. And thank you again for being with us. I want to say to our listeners once again, our motto is unity starts with a cup of coffee. So get out and whether, you know, it's coffee or a cup of tea or, you know, a Diet Coke, whatever the person's willing to get together and and have with you, enjoy some good conversation and dialogue and let's work toward the unity that is so near and dear to the heart of Christ. We'll see you next time on our next podcast of Common Ground Unity. Thank you for listening to the Common Ground Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. 
If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.